And now I hear the word of the Lord from 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and Colossians chapter 3. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and next to him in rank were Zechariah and Jazael. They were to play the lyres and harps. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaniah and Jazael, the priest, were to blow the trumpets regularly before the ark of the covenant of God. That day, David first appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell all of his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced, you his servants, the descendants of Israel, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree to Israel, as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan, as the portion you will inherit. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing. Let them sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out, save us, God our Savior. Gather us and deliver us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And now Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. 
Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Erica. Don't have a handout today, but had a long scripture passage and a prop. So if you're playing Waypoint Bingo, uh, you can check your boxes. Uh, God is good. He is with us this morning. We heard two amazing passages, one from Chronicles, when David, when the ark, this is a poor representation of the ark, but it's just, we'll talk about it later, but uh, this is the ark. See, I have my tablets from VBS. I really was, I really was Moses during VBS for the kids who didn't know, the beard didn't, you couldn't tell, I I was. Um, Last week, we're in a series, uh, every August, before the school year starts, we, we talk about what it means to be the church. We might talk about some of Waypoint's values. Um, we might talk about our mission statement. This time, one time we talked about the Apostles' Creed and just what we believed. This time, we're talking about what it means to be a local church. And last week, Pastor Lawrence preached a sermon on what is the church. And he used a lot of historical and um, just explaining from the text, from the biblical text and in, in, in church history, what do we, when we say the church, what do we mean? And the church is the universal church and the local church. But today, for today, I want to answer the question, why does the church gather? Um, why do we gather? And some of you might want to know that. I mean, you might have different experiences with church growing up or different situations. But there's one word, there's a one word answer, or two, you could say, to worship. The church gathers to worship. That's why we gather. And as I studied the Old Testament for, in preparation for this sermon, there, there's kind of two Hebrew words that we translate into English for worship. And one of them lines up to be devoted in service, almost like it's the same word for a laborer. Um, and then the other word is full affection. Literally, it means to bow down. So I've come up with this definition. To worship is to be devoted in service and full affection to something or someone, Right? And that, but then as Christians, it's to be devoted in full service and full affection to God. But before we talk about the Christian form of worship, I just want to, if this is the definition of worship, one of the definitions or way to define worship is to be devoted in service and full affection to something or someone, uh, basically to give your heart, mind, soul, and strength to something. Where have you seen this? Like we're in your own culture. Most of us are Americans here. We have some internationals too among us, and we're awesome. We're glad to have that. But in your own culture, where have you seen worship? Not necessarily even just religious worship. Sports teams? 
college football, Pastor Lawrence, we're both SEC guys, and Jay, our new uh, guy, he went to a small liberal arts school, but he's an SEC guy too. So SEC football is going to be here to stay at uh, Waypoint Church. But uh, yes, so that's even in my notes. I was going to put pictures of RVs on campus and the craziness surrounding Auburn and Alabama and, and LSU and Florida football. I grew up in a region of the country where people worshiped football. Unfortunately, I was one of those, and God redeemed me. I still love college football, and I still get to enjoy it, but I, it's not an idol in my life, I, I hope. Um, here in ACC land, some people worship ACC basketball, you could say, a little bit. It's an obsession. Uh, some people worship their career, obtaining wealth or power, hobbies, living for the weekend, living for these other things. And all these things aren't, aren't bad. God gave us this world. This is, this is our Father's world. We can enjoy it. But if we don't have our priorities straight, we'll end up worshiping the created things and not the Creator. God wants us to enjoy the created things, but He wants us to do it in the proper order because that's what we were made to be. So that's kind of the essence of this sermon. We're going to worship something. The church gathers to worship God. So I'm going to put it up one more time. So why does the church gather? To worship, to be devoted in service and full affection to God. And like I said, I'm I'm focusing on the two Hebrew words. One is this working for God, working and building the temple that it says that's worship. And then there's another Hebrew word that literally means to bow down, to prostrate, to to really focus on it, to to give it your your heart. Um, Now, I know some of you might think, well, doesn't the church exist for fellowship, service, and outreach? Um, there's a joke. You know, it's, we used to have this thing called show and tell. I don't, I don't know if they do it very much anymore, but like every Friday you could bring something to school and you'd show the class something from your house. Or We, we did it maybe, maybe a couple times a month when I was growing up, but there's a joke. It says for show and tell, like a, the teacher's like, bring something about your religion. And the Jewish kid brings like a yarmulke, and the Catholic kid brings a rosary, and the Baptist kid brings a casserole. <laughs> if you grew up in the 80s or 90s church, you know what I'm talking about. And, and fellowship is important, and service is important, and outreach is important. But true fellowship, true service, and true outreach will only happen when we worship together and we're a worshiping church And then the overflow of God filling us as we worship him is the Holy Spirit empowers and directs our fellowship, our service, and our outreach. So worship is the starting point and it's the end point. But it gives us the correct focus to do everything else. So if worship is the goal and the purpose of the church, I want us to think about, think through three questions this morning. Why do we worship? Why and how do we worship as a, I'm sorry, who do we worship? Why and how do we worship as a local body? And what does that look like for me for my everyday life? So first one, why, who do we worship? And I'm going to give you a very short answer and I'm just going to read a historic document and that's going to give us clarity. Who do we worship? We worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We just sang this. I'm going to read the Nicene Creed. And for those of you who don't know what the Nicene Creed is, this is basically the historic document of our faith. This is the summary that the church came up with about 1,600 years ago to say, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do we believe? 
And this document has stood the test of time as giving us the core essence of what it means to be Christian. C.S. Lewis said, the Christian name for God is Trinity, because God is three persons, three in one, three equal people who are one God in full submission and relationship and love with one another. And God, when he creates us, he brings us into that relationship. So I'm going to read the Nicene Creed. Just listen. If you know it, you can say it along, but uh, just, just listen. This is the God that we worship. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated. Right now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This is our hope. Even in the brokenness, this is our hope. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son, is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And the word Catholic here means the universal church throughout the world through all time. It's not... The, the denomination Catholic Church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Who do we worship? We worship God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Romans 8, If I, I challenge you to go back to that often. It gives us a good context of this, of how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are still working in our own hearts now and in our world now. So that's who we worship. And I want to highlight a book. If, if you don't know much about the Trinity, this book is 100 and, it's not very long, I mean 128 pages, but it's the best summary of the Trinity I found that just gives a, it's called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It's just a good summary. Actually, I've been praying about it a while, I'll talk to Eric, but I, I'd like to just go through this with some people. Any, it, do something about the Trinity, because Trinity is important. So here at Waypoint, we want to make sure that we understand this. So who do we worship? We worship God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now I want to jump into why and how do we worship as a local body. And I kept these together, the why and the how, because I feel like the Bible passage we're going to look at kind of gives us the why and the how. So I'm going to let the Bible teach the Bible and, and kind of fuse those into one. Um, so what I want to do is look at a time in redemptive history when God's people came back to God and God showed them why and how there are to worship him as people. And this comes from 1 Chronicles 16, uh, verses 1 through 36, the passage that Erica read this morning. And it starts off with, with verse 1. It says, they brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And um, this is obviously a poor replica of the ark. Um, but I want to start off just by saying, what is the ark? 
Actually, where's my phone? Because I was... Oh, here it is. Okay. So what is the ark? Because I have some prop music, too. So, all right. So let's show the first one. So this is just a rep, what, what it could have looked like. It's, it's a wooden box plated with gold with two cherubim angels seated on top. And then inside, there's the tablets that God gave Moses and the bread, manna, and a few other items. And then on top is the atonement cover. And a lot happens here. Uh, I want to show you another image. So me growing up as a child in the 80s, this is my version of the Ark. Where the Nazis wanted to get the Ark that's supposedly somewhere in the world so that they could have the power of the Ark. And Indiana Jones, the archaeologist, you know, who's amazing, who every kid in my generation wanted to be an archaeologist because we thought it... I mean, you can go to the next slide. This is probably distracting. All right. Uh, this one's distracting, too. I'll show you this one. So this... I just, I just Googled Ark pictures, and if you notice the caption at the bottom, it says, the Ark of the Covenant might be inside a ch- hiding inside a church in Ethiopia. Then Ripley's, believe it or not, has like a thing on the Ark. So there's still this mystery surrounding it. Um, so we can, we can take off the Ark pictures. Um, so the tabernacle that God asked Moses to complete, it consisted of two rooms. The first room was the holy place where the p- priests ministered daily. And then the second room was the most holy place. And only the high priest went in there once annually on the Day of Atonement. And in the holy place was a box. And this box represented God and God's presence. And that's kind of what David is celebrating in this passage. Real quick, the Ark has three names in the Old Testament. Uh, Old Testament professor Soon Leong Sao says the ark was from the start a cultic and political symbol. Cultic just means religious ritual symbol. Its presence signified the presence of Yahweh or the presence of God. The ark of God, the ark of Yahweh is one name it's called in the Old Testament. And the ark is 82 times it's called this and it's associated with the divine name, the name of Yahweh, um, the God of Israel. The Lord of the earth, the most high. The second one is the Ark of the Covenant. It's also called that in the Old Testament. Same, same item, just different names describing it. And this designation appears 40 times, 30 times in various forms with the divine name. And it's called the Ark of the Covenant because it's, it's helping people see that it, inside this is remembrance of the covenant, the promise that God made with them. And the third title you'll see in the Old Testament is the Ark of the Testimony. And this is close to the name, the Ark of the Covenant. This designation, uh, designation got its name from the fact that it would be the housing for God's testimony to his people. His law was not only verbal, but written etched in stone. And the stones were in the Ark. So there could be no excuse for disobedience. Hebrews 9.4 tells us that later the Israelites added to the stone tablets within the Ark the testimony, the jar of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. The Ark of the Testimony represented the presence of God with his people and his power went with them wherever they took the Ark. Essence, the theme of the uh, Indiana Jones movie was people thought, oh, we get God's power if we get the Ark. But we know from Hebrew history, other armies actually had the Ark. Saul gets it back. The Ark was not in their... Those armies didn't get favor by having the Ark. God actually used it against them because the Ark wasn't in its proper place with its proper people. So what is the ark? 
This is Danny's definition. It's a box representing a place where the promise of God, the mercy of God, and the presence of God all dwell. So if I told you, you could go to a place where the promise of God, the mercy of God, and the presence of God all dwell in one place, would you want to go there? We all would. Well, I'm going to give you a foreshadowing of the end of the sermon. The church is that place right now. You're in that place right now. We don't have to go with cool whips and stuff all around the world. We're, literally, God says, we're in, I could just end the sermon. You're in that place now. That's what the local church is. I'm done. So let's look at the pattern of worship. Like, so, so they get this box, and David's like, foreign armies had it, and Saul didn't take care of it. But I'm going to follow God's law, and I'm going to take this and put it in its proper place in the tent. And we're going to celebrate because we have, we, have the power, we have the presence of God, we have the mercy of God, and we have the promise of God all in one place. So let's look at the pattern of worship when they got it. What did David, the Holy Spirit tells David, this is what you need to tell them to do now that things are starting to get right with God. If we go to 1 Chronicles 16, and verse 2, it says, After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, he's following Moses' commands of how to honor God. He blessed the people in the name of the Lord. So he presents these offerings to God, and then he blesses the people. He actually gives them each a loaf of bread and some cakes, saying, this represents God's gift to you as his people. This is cool. Then the praise band was assembled. David's like kind of like Nathan. He's assembling the praise band. He's, you know, and they, he sets the schedule. He's like, all right, guys, here's what you got to do. Let's look at verse four. He appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord. Uh, verse four. To extol, thank, and praise the Lord. I want to highlight those three words. To extol, to thank, and praise the Lord. I think these are the essence of worship in this community, these three words. To extol means to proclaim the truth, to remind or to remember or to recall an event. To praise just means to cheer or to brag about or to extol, same word, the greatness of something. And thanks in, this, in the Hebrew context would mean a public expression of praise or something linked to a confession, like we're, we're confessing and we're thankful for what you're doing. So you have this word extol, you have this word thank, and you have this praise. These three things are coming together because they have the presence and the mercy and the promises of God. And David says, let's get, strike up the band. Let's get the best musicians. And we have some talented musicians for a small church. I'm going to give props to our praise team. I thank God that he's given us. And thank God for using your gifts and getting here early and, the, and everybody surrounding that each Sunday so that we can worship and then David gives them these commands. Play the lyres and the harps. They, the priests. So I couldn't have been a priest. I'm a pastor, but I couldn't have been a priest back in the day because I have no musical skill. I couldn't play the trumpet. Maybe if it's just like blow one note, I could probably learn one note. But if it was multiple notes. But they were to blow the trumpets regularly to praise God because this thing represents God's presence, his promise, and his mercy. Then they, God gives through David, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Instruction for how to praise God and how to, how, how to praise God. I just want to look at some of the verbs in this. And this is, I mentioned worship is full service and full affection. 
And I think this is kind of fusing the two together. Like he's, he's saying, and he's saying, why do we worship God? How do we do it? We do it by acknowledging God and God's goodness and faithfulness and then praising him for it. So this is a little bit more affection right now. He's saying, I'm not asking you to do something. I'm asking you to just listen, remember, hear, and then praise God for it with your affection by bowing down, by remembering. So look at the verbs, verse 7. It says, this is how he, he gave Asap and his associates to the, these instructions to praise the Lord in this manner. And then in verse 8, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name. That's why, part of why we assemble. We, we're here this morning to give thanks to the Lord and proclaim his name. Make his known, name known among the nations. Verse 9, sing to him, sing praise to him. We did that earlier, we're going to do that right after I, I, this sermon. Verse 10, glory in his holy name. Like, let your hearts be changed. Let your hearts rejoice. Just revel in him. Like, let him sink in. Verse 11, look to the Lord and his strength. The power isn't in the box. The box doesn't even exist anymore. We don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. It was most likely destroyed. So don't go looking for it. But we can look to his strength and seek his face always, and he will take care of us. Verse 12, remember the wonders he has done. Verse 15, God, he remembers his covenant forever. God is good and he's faithful. Part of why this is called the Ark of the Covenant is because God wants them to remember the covenants that he's going to be faithful even when they're unfaithful. The covenants that we've made with God are good. <laughs> the covenant Abraham made with God is good because no matter what, how much the people failed, God would be faithful. And the covenant that Jesus makes, the new covenant that we learn about in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that Jesus gives us is good because he, he completes the task so that we can be free. So even when we fail, we can remember his covenant promise. Verse 23, sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Verse 24, declare his glory among the nations. Verse 28, sorry Mitch, I'm making you jump around a little bit. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to, verse 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. This is worship. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The end of verse 29. Verse 30, tremble before him all the earth. All the earth praises God. The trees, the mountains, everything praises God. Verse 34, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Cry out. It's interesting. It says he's good. His love endures forever. Then it says cry out, save us, God our Savior. This is the tension. We're there, but we're not there yet. We still can cry out, God, our Savior, gather us, deliver us, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, and I want all of you to say these two words. All the people said, amen and praise the Lord. You know what praise the Lord is in Hebrew? I'll teach you a little Hebrew lesson. Hallelujah. Hallel is praise. Like you, that's actually the name of like the Jewish ministry, the Hallel ministry. Hallel means praise and uh Hallelujah 
is Yah is Yahweh. Praise the Lord. So they got excited about the ark because God was making things right. There was a king who was good, who honored God, and the, the ark was in its proper place. And they were excited because they could go to a place and say, we know that the promise of God, the mercy of God, and the presence of God is here. So we're okay. All of us want to run to safety when things are hard. And there's always a place that you feel the safest. And They knew that if they had this, that they were safe. But what about us today? And where is the ark? How do we experience the promise, the mercy, and the presence of God? So the Old Testament actually tells us where the ark is or it deals with this issue in Jeremiah 3, 16 and 17. So the ark, after Israelites, uh, David does good and then things start falling apart. David has a lot of problems too. Every king is bad. A few of them, Josiah, a couple of them bring things back. But generally, the kings are bad. God says, hey, if you don't honor me, if you don't seek my protection, if you try to do things your own way, you will fail. Other armies will come in and invade you. The other armies came in and they took the ark and they took it off to their own place. And God allowed this to happen because of the sin of the people. And by the time Jeremiah is writing, he's talk, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are talking about this new covenant that was already promised in Deuteronomy to Moses. But they're like, there's a new covenant. And part of this new covenant, Jeremiah says this. He says, in those days, and he's talking about the days of Jesus and even the church age that we're in now, but even the age to come. He says, in those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter the mi their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. Why? Because the church, because Jesus comes. We, we get to be, the, the presence and the mercy of God comes in Jesus and it comes in the pouring of the Holy Spirit. So Jeremiah can say this because he's prophesying about a future time. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of the, their evil hearts. And as we talk about Revelation in our next series that's going to come in like three weeks, we're going to unpack what, what it means to be, we're the church now, but there's also the promises that were started in the Old Testament that Revelation shows us that one day when God makes all things right, some of this stuff will be fulfilled. But the main thing we can learn from this Jeremiah prophecy is that we don't need the box anymore. God made another way in the new covenant. This was a temporary display to show the people, to give them this, this model so that they could understand God and it, just something tangible. In Hebrews 9, it says, That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand and a table and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain there was a second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark was a gold jar of manna containing Aaron's staff and sprouted leaves and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of divine glory whose wings stretched out over the Ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. The author of Hebrews goes on. 
When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only one high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. He always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins of people that they had committed in ignorance. So he literally would put blood on it once a year. And this, the top of it, the mercy of God, the mercy seat, the place of atonement was where the sins of the people would happen. And he says, once a year, he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. But these regu- by these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance of the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and its system, and its system it, was, it represented were still in use. This is the important part I want us to see. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the, police, the priest offer are not able to cleanse the conscience of people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical reg- regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. Here's the new covenant. So Christ, Jesus, has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of the created world. So this was a representation of something in heaven, and this was good for them at the time. But Jesus is providing a better way. With his own blood, verse 12, not by the blood of goats or calves, which is what the priests would have sprinkled on this, he entered, Jesus enters into the most holy place once and for all and secured our redemption forever. We don't need the box anymore because we have the cross and we have the resurrection and we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus dies, it says the veil and the curtain in the temple was torn in two and the spirit goes out. Verse 23, I'm jumping ahead. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, the tabernacle's the tent where this, this was housed, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. It had to be purified by Jesus, the blood of our Savior. Verse 28. So also Christ was offered for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with our sins, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the good news. We get the promise of God. We get the mercy of God. We get the presence of God. Let's extol. Let's thank him. Let's praise him. Let's worship God. So what does this look like for our everyday life? The church is the place where the people, the place in the people, where the promise of God, the mercy of God, and the presence of God are experienced here on earth right here, right now, even though we're broken, even though we're messed up. David said all those things. David quotes a bunch of Psalms when he says that praise that we read earlier. But David still had some issues. He still needed to come to God in forgiveness. So one day God will make it all right. But still, God has said the place where his promise and his mercy and his, and his presence dwell is us being his body. In Romans 12, 1, after all that Paul said, Romans 1 through 11 is Paul saying, here's, here's all that God's done for us despite our brokenness. And the first thing Paul says after that is, therefore, 
I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And what Paul's saying here is, is the second part of worship, as I talked about. This devotion and full service. What does it mean for us as Christians to be devoted in full service? Right after this, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then he spends four chapters telling them how to be the local body. Unfortunately, we often read Romans individualistically. We think it's about me. But if you actually look at it, right after this, Paul says, one body, many parts. And then he talks about how to be the body. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds as individuals, but to be part of the body. We worship God by serving each other. And I I feel like this Colossians 3 passage sums up what it should look like. So my answer is, what should it look like for everyday Christians to worship God? There's a lot of... So the Gospels, there's the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels show us that there's a new kingdom and a new way. We don't need the ark anymore. We have Jesus. And then Paul, and then Jesus dies and he's reigning and his, his people say... God gives his people by the power of the Holy Spirit the word and it says, therefore, this is Colossians 3, as God's chosen people, holy and dear love, close yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. How do we worship God? We do this. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. How do we worship God? We do this. It's hard. We got to do it in community. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. We worship God by letting the peace of of Christ dwell in our hearts and being thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell richly among you as you teach and admonish. I'm trying to do that now. That's why we, we have sermons and teaching during our worship service. Um, one another with all wisdom. And we do this by singing psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit of God, singing with gratitude in our hearts. And whatever we do, whether in word or deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. When we worship and honor God by saying no to sin, by, by bearing one another's burdens, by having compassion, by being kind, by being thankful, by forgiving one another, by singing and praising and worshiping God and looking to his instruction. We start becoming the church, God's local assembly, where the promise of God, the mercy of God and the presence of God dwell. Let's be that church. It's it's hard. It's hard work, but it's good work because it's right. And God's given us his spirit Let's extol, thank, and praise God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for a place where we can come and be your people and the promises that you've given us in that. I pray that as your local church, we would be a place where true worship happens, where we worship you in adoration and in affection, and we worship you in serving one another and loving one another and being your body. Show us what that looks like each day as we trust you in all things. And we worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.